Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll be discussing Scottish disappointment as they miss out on a place at the World Cup with Michael Grant. We'll also speak to Gary Jacob about Wales to see if they can break Ukrainian hearts after they come past the Scots. We'll also be speaking to Thomas Hill Lopez Menchero about the legacy that Gareth Bale leaves in Spain. We'll also reflect on Paul Pogba's time at Manchester United. This is the game. Hello again, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark. And for the first part of the pod, we're joined by Michael Grant, reflecting disappointment for Steve Clark's Scotland as they miss out on a first World Cup appearance since 1998 after a 3-1 defeat at Hampden Park against Ukraine. Uh, the game, of course, was postponed. It was due to take place in March, but postponed due to that Russian invasion in Ukraine and before the game there were images of fans watching on in, in war-torn Ukraine circulated three and a half thousand away fans attended the match at Hamden Park including 65 orphaned Ukrainian children who were invited by the Scottish FA I think it's an evening that none of those people will forget and probably the Scotland fans as well Michael Grant was there as I say uh, hi, Michael. Just tell us about, before we get to the football, what it was like experiencing those pre-match scenes. Yeah, it, it was a unique kind of build-up cue. The, the, the mood and the vibe around Glasgow on the on the day of the game was was pretty special. I mean, you know, great kind of um, friendship and kinship between the two sets of supporters. A lot of, uh, you know, a great welcome given to the Ukraine visiting fans. There was lots of Ukrainian flags dotted around the, the Scotland support, the, their players got a cheer when they came out for the warm-up first of all and I think some Scotland fans tried to sing along with the national anthem of Ukraine there was phonetic uh, leaflets had been given out to, to help them sing along with it I'm not sure it was a, a great success but they tried but I think what, 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 what was interesting Hugh was that as soon as the game started it very much became a kind of a full-blooded full-throttle uh, football match I mean you know within the first minute uh, a spell of Ukrainian possession was getting booed by by the town. I mean, I thought, well, I quite like that. It just shows that they, they were able to separate and, and immediately go into kind of football mode, you know. But um, yeah, it, the, the occasion was pretty special and pretty charged. Yeah, yeah. There were tackles flying in immediately, yellow cards handed out in the first five minutes. It seemed like Ukraine were also able to flick that switch, their players. I think they understood the magnitude. It felt like they understood the magnitude of the match more, or maybe it just meant more to them. But certainly in that first sort of 15 minute spell, it wasn't like Scotland was shell shocked, but you could just, you could just feel that maybe there was a little bit of a higher level of intensity from Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, the, the players came out draped in, in Ukrainian flags, you know, so I mean, I mean, straight away, that's like in a, you know, that's, that's something different and special. It, you know, the, it was always going to be a night when the adrenaline would carry Ukraine through, um, or, or sorry, carry them in, into the match. I think Scotland had two, two hopes, really. I mean, I, I think in normal circumstances, you would say Ukraine are a superior side to Scotland, you know, all things being equal. I think Scotland's two hopes last night were, one, that the emotion, the whole responsibility and the weight of the occasion might get to Ukraine negatively and they just might not be clear-headed enough to perform. And of course, the other the other factor was the fact that they hadn't played or half the side hadn't played competitive football since December. I, 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 I was really intrigued to see how many Ukraine-based players would be in the starting team because I thought he, he, the coach might try and you know rely on those who are who are playing um, in other countries. But no, there was there was six Ukraine-based players on the side. Now all they've had really is is two or three friendlies and a training camp for the last month. So you thought 
surely that would work in Scotland's favour in terms of match sharpness and competitive edge, but it, it, it never really did, to be honest with you. Apart from that kind of late surge that Scotland had, Ukraine were the better side. They played better football. They, they kept the ball better. They looked more threatening. Pretty much on every measure, they were they were the better side last night. What do you think then of, of how Scotland approached the game? Steve Clark, did he get things wrong last night or were there key players that just didn't perform uh, a night to forget for some of Scotland's bigger names? Yeah, all, all of that's true, Hugh. Uh, the, uh, uh, some of the... Most of the key players didn't really perform. Uh, he did get the system wrong, I think. Um, he went with two up front. A lot of fans always like that and, and call for it. But he went with Lyndon Dykes and Shea Adams. And, and it left Scotland a man down in the, in the middle. And against a side as good as Ukraine, that that was costly. Clark's interesting. I mean, he, he is a shrewd manager. He, he's, he's, he's perceptive. He has been... a, 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 a a great score, a very good Scotland manager in terms of his body of results overall. But now and again, he is guilty of putting out the wrong side and 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 just calling it wrong or 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 overthinking it. The, the two home games at the Euros against the Czech Republic and Croatia were similar to last night in terms of picking the wrong side. I mean, the midfield against the Czechs was 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 the wrong blend. He changed it entirely for Wembley by putting Callum McGregor and Billy Gilmore together. And that was one of the best Scotland performances in a long, long time. It was it was grown up and intelligent and they kept the ball well. And then in the in the third game you saw them give Luka Modric far too much time. He had the run of Hamden and it made he made it count in a three one win. And there was echoes of that last night in, in terms of just not um uh, you know not not being joined up between the midfield and the and the attack. Too much space. Ukraine were good enough to to exploit that. And then, and indiv- individually, I, I don't think Scotland had many good performances last night. I thought Callum McGregor was quite good. I thought uh, Craig Gord made some important saves. But by and large, by and large, they were they, they were second best and, and kind of flat and a pr- pretty demoralising result, really, because um you know another World Cup slips away. Michael, you touched on all the emotions that were in in the uh, pre-match build-up and the kind of way Ukraine started the match, and you reflected there on the two home games in the Euros. One of the things I was wondering was whether, obviously, the Scottish support is so fevered and so passionate, but with this kind of team that are maybe a little bit more suited to being the underdogs, should we say, and also having some young players in there, you know, the likes of Hickey, Gilmore. Do you think there's a case of where that's the next step where they've got to now perform in these big games in front of the Hamden crowd, in front of when when you're the home team? Is there, is there a little bit of that that comes into play where they can't quite handle that pressure of being the home team and, and, and having all that kind of fevered support behind them? It's curious for Tom because there's, there's been a couple of games where they have done it. Uh, they, they beat Israel in a, in a, in a kind of must-win uh, World Cup qualifier last October 3-2. I mean, it was a last-minute goal by... By, McTom- by McTominay, you know, and, and they also beat Denmark in, in a terrific performance in November in the final group game. Now, okay, Denmark had qualified, and you could you could say they took their, their you know their, their eye was off it, but it was a, it was a, a fabulous Scotland performance, and they have handled pressure occasions. And you know, they beat Israel and Serbia in the in the, in the shoot in the sorry the playoffs to get to Euro two thousand and twenty. So, I, I take your point entirely. You know, it, it, it is a bit of a worrying recurring theme that. Um, three um, big matches at hand and they haven't really responded and haven't really reacted properly. But but it's a mixed bag. It's it, it's not black and white. You know, there were eight games unbeaten going into last night. They'd won the last six competitive games. So it is a team that the, the supporters have become, had, be, had begun to trust, you know, because the, the, there was a bit of an identity and a playing style. I think that was maybe abandoned last night with Dykes comes in and there's a there's always an inclination to go along with Dykes because uh, you know he 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 is not bad at winning the ball I thought he was pretty ineffective last night but I think I think they kind of almost they almost abandoned what has worked for them uh, last night and it, it, it was costly you know it's it's a shame because um there has been real momentum and the, and the fans have engaged with this team um, and I think that'll stay but obviously, it, it's a, it is a big, big setback because um, they were longing to get to the World Cup again. So, Michael, where do 
Scotland go from here? Where does Steve Clark go from here? I mean, I heard some fans on the radio last night, obviously, off the back of that result, not very happy, but some saying uh, that, that Scottish football needs to go in a new direction. Maybe they have a, an emerging squad and they need a more emerging manager. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that sounds like the kind of reaction you normally get after you get knocked out of a World Cup. I mean, Scotland have, have gone in a lot of directions over the last 20 years and it's uh, it's, it's not, not really got them very far. Listen, Steve Clark is not beyond criticism. There's no question about that. But I think one important factor that, that sometimes gets overlooked is that he is respected and um, admired by the players. Now, that's a significant thing for Scotland because over the years, we've seen a culture at times of, 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 of squad withdrawals and, and, and squad call-offs and some pretty tenuous excuses for that. And, and, and that's basically because the, the you know, players weren't fancying a manager and, and they found it easy to just um, to pull out. There's not been that culture under Clark. You know, the, the, the senior players, Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney, John McGinn, uh, McTominay, the, the, these guys like coming to the Scotland team uh, set up. They enjoy it. Uh, Robertson's got a great attendance record and when it might be easier for him to, to concentrate on club matters at Liverpool. I think that is significant that the, the, the players buy into him. By and large, it's a relatively youngish group with plenty of time ahead of them to, to, to reach to reach further tournaments. You know, Hickey didn't play well last night, but he's only 19. We're going to see far more from him. Billy Gilmore is has, is not, again, not great last night. Found it difficult, uh, overrun at times, but 20 years old, uh, you know, a, a, a fabulous prospect for the future. Tierney was badly missed last night. Um, John McGinn, uh, again, I mean, McGinn missed a big chance that, that in uh, if we look back on the game, you know, might have might have kept Scotland in it. Um, Shea Adams is a relatively new arrival in the scene about the last year or so. So there is a backbone of of talent there that um, you know we didn't kind of overreact to losing to a good Ukraine side that were quarter-finalists at Euro 2020. They've now got to to get their heads right for a Nations League triple header, which which looks pretty pretty humdrum at the moment. You know, Armenia home and away and the Republic of Ireland away. But Scotland need to do well in this group and to try and secure a, a, a decent uh, seeding for the Euros. Absolutely, they do, especially given their route to the last uh, tournament. Uh, Michael Grant, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation a little bit about that game next, and we'll talk, of course, about who Ukraine will face next. Thank you. Well, I, I agree with a lot of what Michael had to say there, I've got to say, Tom. I really do think Steve Clark got it wrong. And it's one of those things we always talk about, about reacting I can understand why Che Adams was left on the pitch and Lyndon Dykes was the one replaced. Um, as Michael said there, he didn't play well. Che Adams didn't play well in the first half either. I mean, both of them were peripheral. And I think for me, it was one of those where I, I felt Lyndon Dykes gave them more of a, fo a focal point. And I think that that had disappeared, even though they had an extra man in midfield. And I thought Ryan Christie played okay. I, I just think they lost that that you know, that focus of their attack, particularly when they had, you know, they didn't have a settled side. It wasn't their best 11. I, I really thought he made a mistake in taking Lyndon Dykes off then. I mean, I mean, even on commentary, Ali McCoy was saying, oh, can Che Adams play a little bit deeper? Can he go into midfield and play as a number 10? And I thought, yeah, if you're, if you're desperate to keep them both on the pitch, then, then try that. Um, funnily enough, late on in the game, when they needed a goal, ball was getting crossed into the box. You know, it was time and time. And I was just screaming at the TV. I mean, you need Lyndon Dykes. You need that presence in the box, aerial quality in the box. And they, they didn't have it. And I think that was, you know, I mean, look, maybe they never get those chances. Maybe they're not. They are not even that high up the pitch to put balls into the box if Lyndon Dykes is still on the pitch and they haven't got that extra man in midfield. But um, I think it was quite apparent quite early that... Scotland was struggling with what Ukraine had in midfield. And that would only be that would be my one criticism of Steve Clark. I, I agree, got it wrong. I was surprised that there were two up front because because of the because of the wingback system. Like if you're gonna play the wingback system and you've got Andrew Robertson and you've got Hickey who likes to get forward as well and has that energy as well, then you, surely you're gonna play through those two players 
and you don't need to up front. Anyway, may, may, look, I'm not a football coach. Maybe I'm totally wrong. <laughs> no, but I think you make a good point. And I wonder whether this is part of the, you know, modern modern way of analysing football. And, you know, our, our colleague Johnny Northcroft was talking about it on Twitter, saying he couldn't understand why Steve Clark had talked saying after the game, saying, oh, I wanted to get it down and play through the lines. When, as you say, one, that means you come up against... Ukraine's midfield, which is far stronger, and two, when you then played two strikers, you actually need you need to get the ball to those two strikers first. And if your midfield is inferior, then it is maybe as simple as get it forward to the big guy. And I wonder whether sometimes in modern football and coaches like Steve Clark, who've you know shown tactical adaptability at times in their careers, sometimes wonder, oh, is it going to look a bit basic if I'm lumping it forward to the big guy? But as you say, Scotland looked most threatening essentially when they were doing that. You know, getting balls into the Ukraine box, causing them problems. That's where the goal came from. And Ukraine looked a bit unsettled when they did that. And so maybe if they'd gone a bit more basic, a bit more back back to front, bypass that midfield a little bit, it would have been, it would have been better. But I, I do wonder whether there's a little bit of that you know, modern football thing of the the snobbery, if you like, towards playing playing a big guy and a little guy up front and knocking it long to them. But it might have been the best bet. And finally, on this game, I've got to say, tears in the pre-match press conference, Tom, from Alexander Zinchenko. He was absolutely brilliant controlling that midfield for Ukraine. He's one of those players who, I mean, we've seen it from players from all over the world that have come into English football and sort of carry the weight of expectation of their nation a little bit. And in in some cases, it makes them a far better player. And Zinchenko, who's been, you know, he is not a regular starter for Manchester City, particularly in midfield where he plays for his country. Um, but when he plays for his country, the commitment that he shows, I mean, he always shows commitment, but that he, he does go up a level in terms of maturity, I think. You know, there is no Kevin De Bruyne to lean on. That You know, there are no big, big world-class players to lean on in the Ukrainian side, there's him. And he is emerging for them more and more so. And it's sad to say, but maybe because of the situation in his homeland, to be a big player in international football. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's interesting you mentioned City there because I actually think towards the end of the season, he was brilliant for City in games, both coming off the bench and starting games, you know, in, in important periods where they were churning out those relentless victories towards the title. I thought he was excellent. But yeah, and I mean, also Yarmolenko in a very different way, but again, a player who's maybe not lived up to the expectation in the Premier League at West Ham, uh, apart from the odd moment here and there. I mean, that first goal, that touch and lob, you know, if there were players of uh, greater notoriety had scored that goal, I think, you know, we'd be seeing clips of it over and over again. But yeah, Zinchenko has been superb. And I think for both of those players, you know, they became symbols of the um, the reaction to the, what was happening in Ukraine in, in amongst sport in the early days of the um, the invasion. But, you know, he's been a real symbol for them uh, as a nation. And the fact that you can then go and produce, you know, in a sporting arena under huge pressure is, is incredible, really. And I, I, I do wonder whether in, when it comes to club form, whether Zinchenko will now be held in higher esteem at Manchester City as well on the back of it. I think so as well. You watched the game, you thought, a City really going to let this kid go? Like it was yeah. one of those where he also, it's one of those situations that we've always spoken about. You need a you need a squad. You need a high quality squad. He seems to love being at Manchester City. He doesn't really seem to complain that he doesn't start every single week, knows his role, chips in in a variety of positions, does whatever is asked of him. And he's got real quality. You watch that game, you thought, are they really going to sell? Zinchenko, they, they can't, can they? Um, if they do, and he stays in the Premier League, someone is going to get a very, very good player, I think. I think he'd be a very popular popular signing for any any club in the Premier League or in any club in Europe, indeed. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him stay at Manchester City just because, and this is not me being cynical and saying City would keep him for PR reasons, but he is now a figure who is so well-liked and does seem to have come on as a player in the last few months, or certainly perhaps it's maybe that we're paying more attention to him. But as you say, I can't understand why, if you were Pep Guardiola, going into a summer where they've signed Erling Haaland, they might be making some changes in terms of the way they set up. You need those players like Zinchenko who can be reliable in those moments early in the season where you want to rotate. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him stay at City. Ukraine will face Wales next for a place in the World Cup. That game comes 
on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Rob Page's side playing their first ever game in the top tier of the Nations League, and it ended in a 2-1 defeat in Poland. I watched the game, got to say, pretty impressed by those fringe players, but... For Wales, it was all about keeping players fit and fresh for that huge, huge game at the Cardiff City Stadium, which is where Gary Jacob is heading right now. He joins us to look ahead to the game. Uh, hi, hi, Gary. Um, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Very, very well. Um, it was a much-changed Wales team. As I said, I was pretty impressed with, with how they went about their business against Poland. It was a good tune-up. It was a good tune-up, and, and the fringe players did well. Um, the front two did well, James and, and Moore, probably until the kind of final delivery. I think the, the main thing really is Rob Page had after is it not, not to come out of the game with injuries. That's why he rested the, the big boys. And it was kind of a bit of a kind of pure preparation, really. For, for I'd imagine that none of the, the players who started, who, sorry, who ended the, the game were going to be start on Sunday. So that kind of shows you the kind of scale of the changes. And I think Wales will kind of um, probably be slightly thankful they're not playing Scotland on Sunday because I think that kind of added would have added an extra dimension, albeit that Ukraine's got its own dimension to kind of to the story. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, Ukraine seems to be the better side. I mean, I wonder whether you just take take Scotland on because you think you can beat them. Um, how how confident should this Wales team be going into a match against Ukraine? I think they should be confident because in recent years they've managed the occasions pretty well. And they, beat Hungary when they needed to get to the, to the Euro finals. They beat Austria quite comfortably and they managed the occasion. I think you kind of have to go back a few years probably to the, the game when they, they lost Ireland at home trying to get into the playoff spot for the previous World Cups where they, they didn't really manage the occasion uh, and, and Martin O'Neill did a bit of a job on them. And I, and I kind of think that kind of whole thing with the with Wales against Ireland in the kind of very in inverted commas, I used to carefully, British um, football probably didn't really suit them that, that night. And I sort of wonder whether now that they'll kind of, they'll, they'll, I think they'll probably be slightly happy. Obviously, Ukraine is slightly unknown. They, they haven't played Ukraine since 2016, which is a kind of friendly pre-Euros, and they lost in Kiev 1-0. So that will be a slight unknown about it. Also, in the back of their mind will be last summer, they faced Denmark and the, and the Ericsson bandwagon, and that, that became a little bit of a noose for them going into that game although albeit they were kind of totally outclassed by Denmark so I think that there are a few pressures against them equally obviously they want to do it for Bell Bell's last shot at a World Cup so, so they are they face quite a few a number of sort of pressures on their shoulders and that kind of have to deal with them um, but I think I think they'll be confident Rob Page called it the biggest match in Wales's football history it, it will probably feel that way for Ukraine as well where do you think this ranks in terms of the magnitude that he discusses? If you go back over the decades, they've, they've been in this position before. They they played Scotland twice to come, to get to finals and they, and they, and they tripped over in 77 and 85. They, everyone remembers the Romania game, uh, Paul Bowden's penalty miss. Uh, then 10 years later, they lost to Russia trying to get to the finals. But I think that was all, with the way they got to Euro 2016, that was kind of all put, a little bit put to bed, really. And so I think... It's, it's, a, it's their biggest it's their biggest match in recent decades I'm, I'm not sure it's probably the, the biggest match in their history because they've been in this position before and unfortunately they've kind of sometimes they've not they've not done it and of course people have to remember they did go to the 58 World Cup and, and lost to Brazil so it's not as if they've not been to the World Cup but probably for Robert Page it's a, it's a massive game because he's on a sort of match by match contract um, he wants to stay on um, but it's not clear what, they, what the FAW are going to do with his position if, if they don't qualify and so probably for him qualifying you would think would kind of be very, very difficult not then to kind of give him a kind of slightly longer con term contract Yeah I think he's done really really well with this Wales side um, Bale, Ramsey, Allen all weren't involved um, Kiefer Moore taken off early how do you expect Wales to play against Ukraine at, at the weekend? I think um, obviously that all the big guns are going to be back, but I, I would imagine that he would stick with his pref preferred system of having a, a false nine uh, striker. He's he he's dabbled every now and again with playing more, but he doesn't seem to be totally confident on more up front. And I think he's he, he's he rather prefers a, a um, either a Wilson or, or or someone else to play up front and and have the the attacking the attacking four rotating. And it'll be obviously Allen and Am Allen in the middle. He may play Morel. 
he, he likes Morel and, and drop Ampadu into the back. Um, and obviously then the, the big use at Rodon will come back and probably Ward would get the nodding goal um, because uh, he, he was the kind of, he got the, he got the position and was, the only reason he didn't play the last time because he was injured and, and, and Hennessy as well, but you'd imagine Ward would be back. So I'd imagine that will be the, the, the team and obviously more would then be the change off the bench. I can't imagine Brennan Johnson will, will start, but you you think he would have a, a role off off the bench. I think just it, it's probably everything's going to be about managing the occasion for them and not getting carried away and and not not kind of almost losing it before before it's too before it's too uh, the, the game's just started. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I thought Wales would turn this into a huge occasion for the country. You know, get the Principality Stadium going, you know, get 80,000 in there, get the rugby fans behind you. Um, but they've decided to stick with the City Stadium. Is that the right decision? Yeah, I, I mean, they, they obviously they've got the contract, so they haven't got any choice in that sense. But also, historically, the players don't like playing at the at the Principality Stadium. Pitch at one time wasn't particularly good. They, the, the players felt it was more of a rugby stadium than a football stadium. And and they just generally, I think they feel more comfortable, certainly when you've got something like 33,000 with a packed football stadium than a sort of half empty, bigger stadium. And the players felt more comfortable with that. And that, they they wanted to kind of stay there. And I think, um, I can, obviously, I can understand the marketing reasons and, and the financial reasons you might move it. But then you know, you, surely the players kind of take preference on this. I mean, obviously, the, the other thing is, uh, I, I think it will be a massive, yeah, as you say, it will be a massive occasion in the country. But I just, um, I think it will just be a bit more intimidating as well for Ukraine in, in, in that kind of close-knit stadium of, of um, 35,000 there. Okay, Gary, make sure you enjoy the game. I'm sure we'll speak Thank to you, you on Monday to, uh, to review what could be Wales taking a step into the World Cup. It would be absolutely massive. Thank you, Gary Jacob. What do you think, Tom? This is a huge, huge game, isn't it? This is massive. I almost feel the tension in my chest for those Wales fans right now. They have to win. They basically, it's, it's yeah, I know it's a very obvious thing to say, but it, it's what I mean is really desperately, they just have to win this game because you, you look at some of those players, this is it for them. You know, Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey, Joe Allen, this is their chance. They've given Welsh football so, so much. You just want to see, especially Gareth Bale, you know, in the biggest competition, even if it's just to be three group games, he deserves it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you obviously mentioned Bale, but you mentioned some of those other players. And I think Aaron Ramsey is a fascinating player uh, in this game. You know, he's not quite the kind of superstar level as Bale, particularly for Wales, but he will be hugely important. And you think about in the Euros, the way that Wales set up, I'd imagine it'd be the same. Bale often, yes, playing as the starring role, but almost playing as a kind of distracting role if you are if you like that kind of presence that pulls players away and creates space maybe for Ramsey to make runs into the box and um I can't quite remember who it was they were playing but in those in a few of those matches Ramsey missed a few big chances and it might be down to players like him to take those chances obviously he's off the back of a um, disappointing end to his season with Rangers so it'll be really interesting I know Gary Jacob was obviously making the point that these players have been rested Robert Page making that decision, you know, keeping keeping them fresh, if you like. But I do wonder as well whether, you know, with Bale and with Ramsey, some of these players who haven't enjoyed great seasons with their clubs, it's a, it is a big ask for them to always turn up for Wales and produce. So it'll be interesting to see whether the likes of Ramsey can support Bale, if you like, because there's no doubt, having seen how Ukraine played with that intensity against Scotland, they'll be straight in closing down Gareth Bale, making sure he doesn't have any space. And it might be that the likes of Alan Ramsey and others need to step up and uh, you know take the opportunities that perhaps Bale being heavily marked create. I think it'll be tough. I, I think they need to use the home advantage for sure. And I think, you know, with their players being rested, they have the ability to put a little bit more energy in that first um, 45 minutes than Ukraine do. Um, I said yesterday about the Scotland game, Scotland need to score first. And I feel that way about Wales as well, because I think if Ukraine score first and they are able to control things, I think they were especially their central midfielders yesterday, just really, really good. Even the ones that came off the bench in calming the game down when it looked like it was getting a little bit out of control. I don't think Wales can allow Ukraine to start trying to monopolize possession. They have to use the home crowd behind them. I thought Scotland needed to do the same as well, but I think the best way to do that, of course, is to score first because those Scotland fans were a little bit quiet after that first goal 
fearing the worst because of course you do in games of this magnitude when it is winner takes it all that if Ukraine score first it could be a long evening for Wales so they, they definitely need to score first Well, there was some pretty big news. I mean, it wasn't unexpected um, this week regarding Manchester United. Um, World Cup winner Paul Pogba leaving the club on a free transfer when it expires at the end of the month. 29 years old, he cost a world record £89 million, then world record, of course, when he rejoined from Juventus in 2016. He only made 27 appearances in his final season due to injury. He did write on Twitter, I feel privileged to have played for this club. Many beautiful moments and memories, but most importantly, an unconditional support from the fans. Thank you, Manchester United. Which is which is quite interesting because we did see the video uh, evidence, yeah, a bit like Boris Johnson, of you being booed off the pitch a number of times, Paul Pogba at Manchester United. But there you go, tweet what you like, I guess. The legacy of Paul Pogba at Manchester United is an interesting one because we're going to talk about Gareth Bale later. The reason I started with Paul Pogba first here instead of Gareth Bale is I think we can broadly agree on the positives and I guess some of the negatives about what happened with Gareth Bale at Real Madrid. I think people, you know, largely agree. But I think Paul Pogba is, is a much more divisive figure. And I wondered why he's viewed by many with such disdain. Let me let me just lay out my argument. It isn't necessarily in defense of Paul Pogba, who I think came with high potential and clearly hasn't reached it. But I think Paul Pogba is the player that Manchester United bought. He hasn't gone way below the standards of the player that they purchased. He hasn't gone way above the standards of the player that they purchased. Now, you can criticize him if you like within that. But I think realistically, there are no guarantees when you sign a player. It is obviously a disappointment when one with high potential doesn't reach it. But I think Paul Pogba is spoken about as if he is you know, a, a player who couldn't even get in the team at Manchester United for the time that he's been there, or he just sat and collected a wage. I don't think that's true. He just simply hasn't hit the heights that you would have hoped for a player of his individual quality. But he also, you know, like I say, it's not like he's been a player who hasn't been included in Manchester United's Premier League squad. You know, he's not a player. He's, he's not Winston Bogart. He hasn't been told, you know, do what you want, coach the under 11s. You know, this isn't that sort of situation. But he's spoken about, I think, in, in those terms with such derision that I found it, I find it quite perplexing because for me as a Manchester United fan, the club's best central midfielder has left on a free and people celebrate that. And I find it actually quite sad that in the time he's been there, I think a lack of coaching, a lack of organisation within the club has left Paul, Paul, Paul Pogba exposed. And also his time at the club has exposed Manchester United because a player of his quality plays so well when he's not in a Manchester United shirt it actually has become apparent that they didn't know what to do with him. He hasn't settled on a position and he also hasn't given, they haven't given Paul Pogba the quality of squad, the quality of players around him for him to succeed. I'm not saying he has no responsibility, but I don't think it's all on him either. No, I think you're right. I think that's a very good summary, Hugh, actually. One thing I would say that I perhaps you missed out is something as simple as money, which is not his fault. His transfer fee was not his fault. It was, you know, incredibly well and hard hard negotiated by Mino Raiola at the time and Manchester United in reality you know you said it yourself they got the player that they signed you know he is a good very good occasionally world-class midfielder and the money that they paid for him was way over the odds I think a lot of the conversation around Paul Pogba would have been very different and less fevered and less angry if you like if Manchester United had paid 50 million for Paul Pogba because I think then you'd be like okay well 50 million pounds he's a pretty good player he's promising there's a bit of potential there but the fact that they paid what they did what was it 89 million something like that I mean you know made him one of the most expensive players in the world also comes back with the whole hashtag Pog back you know at a time where Manchester United with Jose Mourinho manager like this is it this here we go this is this is the time this is the post-David Moyes era. This is the post-Van Gaal era. Here we go. Now we'll be back winning titles. It's just not It's not really fair to pinpoint that all on him. I would say, though, that, you know, you and I, Hugh, as, as journalists, we watch a hell of a lot of Manchester United games because they're often on telly, they're often on Sundays, they're often in Europe. You as a fan, me as a journalist, you know, and I think, you know, we'll talk about it with Gareth Bale, the kind of the, the type of farewell and the highlights reels. He didn't have many great moments, really. And I think in the time he was at the club, I think all your points are fair. 
but the counter argument would be you'd expect more from him. And you look at that highlights reel, you kind of you've got a deflected goal in the Europa League, you've got a good volley against Swansea, you've got you know a few skills. I thought it was quite telling that Pogba himself on social media had kind of had his own highlights reel, and some of it was like little feints and dummies in and around the central area of the pitch in indeterminate games. You know, they weren't like, oh, that time I did a mazy run and, you know, scored from miles away. So I think everyone's to blame for it not being a successful. I think Pogba has to take some responsibility because I think there were plenty of moments where you could look, you look at him on the pitch and I'm not getting into those kind of lazy arguments about he doesn't run enough and all that kind of stuff. I just mean that simply he didn't produce what he what he's capable of and didn't perhaps give absolutely everything to Manchester United. And he may say, well, that's because it's not on me. I'm fed up. The managers didn't help me. And that's modern football. But I think he has to take some responsibility as well as all of those around him and involved in the deal. I agree with that. I mean, when I went to see Manchester United in the flesh, I mean, one thing that always stood out to me about his performances was his lack of tracking back, his lack of running towards his own goal. But also over the years, the fact that a player of his quality, for me, it always stood out that he should be a number 10 and not be given those responsibilities. The fact that five years after he's shown you that he's not that type of player that he doesn't have that defensive awareness that he's still being played in the double pivot virtually as a holding midfielder at times you know struck me as insane ludicrous from the club um, and this is why so many big clubs are still interested in Paul Popper because coaches look at him and they think there's a player there and there's one that I can harness and that's the other thing I think you know when he was linked with Manchester City recently you know City fans saying we don't want someone like him in our squad and of course I think they're referring to attitude The fact that he has been allowed to have that attitude at Manchester United says a lot about the club. I mean, there's no way he would have got away with what he's got away with in terms of his lack of effort at times under Sir Alex Ferguson or at a club that had a different culture. But the point is, there has either been a lack of a strong culture at Manchester United or a lack of a clear idea in terms of coaching him. And it's not just him. You know, you look at the players around him. This is the other thing. You know, people say he's underwhelming. Well, yeah, add Paul Pogba to the list. I mean, my word, the amount of underwhelming players at Manchester United over the last six years, I think Pogba comes out as the maybe epitome or the shining example of what has been so wrong at Manchester United since Sir Alex Ferguson left. But it would not surprise me if we see a great Paul Pogba somewhere else. Um, Yes, I'm frightened at the prospect of him playing for Manchester City. You just are because you just you just know, don't you, that that highlights reel will actually suddenly <laughs> burst into life if he goes to a club like Manchester City. I don't, look, I don't know if Pep Guardiola would want a player like him and his and his perceived attitude, but I do think you know he was linked with Real Madrid. I don't think they need him with the players they've signed over the past couple of years. Paris Saint Germain will always be there for a French player in the French national team, and Juventus, who aren't a great side, only finished fourth in Serie A, I think. You know, did, does he improve a Juventus side? What will he produce in Italy? There are question marks over Paul Pogba. And I think a bit like Gareth Bale over the last few years, I think Pogba and how his career will eventually be seen the next five years, he has to produce. That's all I'll say about him. All right. And we'll, we'll get on to Gareth Bale next. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we'll talk Gareth Bale right now because he says his Real Madrid dream has become a reality in a statement after marking his departure from the Spanish Giants. Uh, his spell with Real ends after his contract expires this summer. Now, he joined from Spurs for a then-world record as well, £85 million in 2013. 32 years old now. He's won so many titles at Real, but the headline is five Champions League winners' medals, although he has been criticised by some parts of the media and some fans in recent years. Tomas Hill Lopez Menchero has written about Bale's legacy at the Spanish club in the Times right now, so make sure you check it out in the Times app. Tomas, thank you for joining us. Is it a positive legacy that Bale leaves? Yeah, cheers for having me on. I think it is a very positive legacy in terms of moments and trophies. Clearly, he's been part of one of the most amazing eras in the club's history. I think, unfortunately, though, as as you sort of alluded to there, the relationship with the fans means that perhaps he won't get the recognition that that maybe he deserves. I think it is a two-way street, though, as I wrote in the in the piece. I think sometimes some commentators have perhaps failed to grasp the fact that Bale perhaps could have shown a bit more tact sometimes. And obviously Madrid fans could have definitely shown a lot more tact at times and and perhaps the Spanish press as well. But I think it is an overall positive legacy, although perhaps one that would have been more positive had he left when when he had the opportunity to and Madrid blocked that move um, a couple of years ago in 2019. Yeah, this is the thing that I find quite strange, um, particularly when we reflect on the way that it was interesting to me. Paul Pogba's um, exit from Manchester United was greeted. Obviously, they have had very contrasting fortunes in terms of trophies. And you could say performance as well. Bale was fantastic at times in a Real Madrid shirt. He scored big goals in big games to win them big prizes. So you can you can understand it from that perspective. But the last three or four years, um, this is a player that has been criticised so much. You know, he prefers golf or he wants to play for Wales, doesn't want to play for Madrid. And it was interesting that when he left, it felt like anyway that most of that was forgiven. I, I was reading the responses to his posts on social media, lots of Madrid fans thanking him for, for his efforts, which, by the way, I think he truly he truly does deserve. Does he deserve any more criticism, though, for the way that his career at Madrid has panned out towards the end? I think there's a certain sadness from Madrid fans at, at how it panned out. Um, I, I don't think, obviously, some of the criticism definitely wasn't warranted. But at the same time, there's frustration that he sometimes seemed to reserve these great performances for Wales, even a couple of days after after not being available for for Madrid. However, however harsh that might seem, that was definitely something which came across in in the Madrid media and also maybe with with Madrid-based fans. There there was just frustration that he couldn't kind of string together a consistent run, and obviously that's not all his fault. Injuries clearly didn't allow him to have a consistent run of form. And, and that's the main frustration from Madrid fans. You know, he came in world record fee, unfairly touted, I think, as, as the kind of next Cristiano Ronaldo or the man who was going to step into his boots. And, and we know that Bale's never really been that sort of player, perhaps. And, and that's a massively high bar to to aspire to. I think the fact he didn't get consistent run of form, though, that is that is always going to be a sense of, of what might have been from Madrid fans' point of view, because... Had he been able to string together a consistent run of form, there's there's every chance he could have been that that star for them for for a long time, and it just hasn't happened. I mean, you even you look at how Bale plays even now compared to when he first came to Madrid. That amazing sprint around Bartra in the Copa del Rey final in 2014. He's a different player now, but that's no slight on his on his Real Madrid career. You know, he scored what's it 100 and 106 goals in 258 appearances, three La Liga titles, five Champions League titles, plenty of players come to Madrid and and achieve far, far less than that. So all in all an impressive an impressive career despite the injuries, but I think that is the the main caveat there. Well, Thomas, uh, thank you very much. It's really an interesting piece that you've written in the Times. Um, you can read it. It's all about the legacy that, that I think from the Spanish perspective, Gareth Bale leaves. So really intriguing if you want to delve into his time in Spain. Thank you so much for joining us on the game. Cheers for having me. So, Tom, Gareth Bale, it's interesting. There were so many tweets, you know, maybe it is just me looking too much on social media, asking the question if he's the best British player ever. There are two things 
that, that really grind my gears in the words of Peter Griffin when it comes to this. Firstly, you know, he hasn't retired. So let's leave the conversation about whether he's the best British player ever, surely until then. But what's interesting is for a lot of people, maybe this is, you know, the end of that Gareth Bale, you know, Galactico as we knew him to, who could do ex- extraordinary things. And, and, you know, maybe the links with Cardiff City are true and maybe, you know, he's going to be a championship player next year and he wants to go back home and play more golf than, than Premier League football. I don't know. I don't know. But I do think that was sort of premature. And the other thing was, I found it really interesting that but Paul Pogba, who we spoke about a little bit earlier on, was so slated. But then, of course, Bale was like, well, you know, he's the greatest British player ever. Some people were, were tweeting that. And I was like, well, he's been exceptional, an incredible player. He's won more, and that's quite apparent, of the big trophies than any other British player. But what I really felt was interesting is that he had the platform to be a great player at Real Madrid. And the other was about a world record signing who had been brought into a club and six years later still hadn't found their best position, who clearly hadn't been given a platform to perform. And of course, add to that, you know, you're winning Champions Leagues, which is great, but you are playing in the front three with Karim Benzema and Cristiano Ronaldo. And you've got a midfield three of Tony Kroos, uh, Luka Modric and, and Casemiro. I mean, that is, like I say, a real platform to perform at the highest level, which of course Pogba never had. So so interestingly on Bale, I guess, you know, how much of it do you give him him credit for? I think the the Real Madrid point is a is a difficult one to get stuck on because you could you can make that point with Lionel Messi's time at Barcelona and Cristiano Ronaldo's time at Real Madrid. You know, the best players tend to end up in the best teams surrounded by great players which allow them to reach reach unfathomable levels um so i think it's a little unfair on bale to say that i would just say one of the easier debates to have i feel and mirroring some of our times readers is um as part of thomas's piece we did a short reader poll about who is real madrid's real madrid's greatest british player not the overall greatest british player but just real madrid's of over 2000 votes bale is by far by far in the lead ahead of laurie cunningham steve McManaman, david beckham uh, shockingly jonathan woodgate didn't make it in there as a as a contender in the list Harsh michael owen who as he reminds us was their top scorer in the league that year he did he had one good season yeah and scored a good goal against barcelona but um i'm not sure it meets, matches the uh, feats of yours. <laughs> I, I, th- I think with Bale and save to compare him to Pogba and you know I, I similarly feel a, l- a little bit of sympathy for Paul Pogba because you know they're completely different players Gareth Bale as you hinted at was one of the you know there are a couple of players now that Kevin De Bruyne Mo Salah but Bale was one of those Galatico players capable of just winning a match on his own single-handedly. He did so for Spurs for an entire season and that's what got him that move to Madrid. And he did so for Madrid. That overhead kick against Liverpool is one of the most astonishing goals I have ever seen. He, he is that type of player. And to compare him to Pogba and discussions around legacy, I think that is ultimately one of the issues with Pogba and his time at Manchester United. You know, he was signed as a superstar record signing when actually he's a he's a very good you know, eight out of 10 midfielder who needs to be part of a good team to be really successful. And I think he came in and people were thinking he's going to start winning the ball, breaking forward, smashing it in the top corner. And yeah, he did that a couple of times, but he's not, he's not got that in his game. He's a, he's a very adaptable, very talented, good passer of the ball. But, you know, he he needs to be in a team of Gareth Bales to succeed. Whereas Gareth Bale you know, has that kind of superstar quality where he can turn games on his head, is still doing it for Wales, um, has done it for Madrid and did it for Tottenham. So I, I, I do, I agree with you. I feel a little bit of sympathy for Pogba uh, in that regard, particularly both of the announcements coming on the same day and both of them having their little highlight reels. You know, you only need to go on social <laughs> media and compare Pogba's highlight reel to Bale's highlight reel and you kind of think, well, you really didn't time this one well, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I thought that was just an interesting angle for us to discuss when we compare Paul Pogba and uh, Gareth Bale, of course. Um, But yeah, I think the responsibility maybe weighs heavier on Pogba's shoulders for some of the disappointment during his time at the club. Anyway, I'm sure you guys will let us know what you think about that. Uh, Hit us up on social media. There is some more opinion that I need to get before we end the podcast, of course, because on Monday we will do finally our end of season awards as well as reacting to lots of international football 
Tom Clark is going to be sunning himself in Saint-Tropez. So <laughs> we need to collect his end-of-season awards right now. We're not going to do them all, but there are a few that I thought was worth discussing with you. Manager of the season, Tom Clark, who have you gone for? I mean, you had to had to get my view on this one, didn't you? And am I going to double down, triple down, quadruple <laughs> down and go for Mikel? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm going to be fascinated to hear who Alison and Tony and you and all the rest of the guys on Monday pick. Because in theory, I think we probably should all be picking Pep Guardiola, winning a title for a second season without a striker, holding off that Liverpool juggernaut towards the end. Absolutely exceptional. But I'm not going to pick him. And no, I'm not going to pick Mikel Arteta. I'm going to pick the man who prevented me from picking Mikel Arteta, Antonio Conte. He might not have been there the whole season, but to make Spurs as less Spursy as he did and get them in the top four. That was a real achievement. And I think it's exciting and interesting what could happen next season with Spurs and Conte. So I'm picking Antonio Conte as my manager of the season. I can confirm that that is a ridiculous choice and I will not be selecting <laughs> Antonio Conte on Monday. I cannot believe well, exactly, the words. you know, I'm just, just going, I'm going left field. I'm leaving the obvious ones open for you guys on Monday. That's all. Hey, listen, by the way, the PFA have gone left field with their player of the year. So so this this yeah. one could go anywhere. I mean, Harry Kane picking up the PFA award. I was shocked by it. I don't know if you were, Tom. Who have you gone for? I, well, I'm going even more silly uh, and a player that will probably win everyone's most improved player. But I'm going to go Joe Linton for player of the season just because I don't I don't think there's any... And I've, you know, I've got a factor in my favourite word when it comes to football analysis, narrative. I've got to for one of these awards, Hugh. <laughs> and you can't beat the narrative arc of Joe Linton at Newcastle because a guy who's a flop, a complete waste of space you know, turned into a central midfielder, becomes so important to the way they play, becomes part of their kind of rise up the table and out of out of trouble. So I'm, I'm going for, a, it's a lovely story. You know, I'm a romantic at heart. I've got to go for something like that. It's dragging the game podcast down, to the bit, <laughs> honestly. People don't come here for this. I'm just leaving, you know, I'm leaving the uh, the more obvious ones open for you guys. You know, I'm just, I can see it now. Alison's going to pick Liverpool and Mo Salah and Jurgen Klopp and all that kind of stuff. And you know, giving you the chance to pick Cristiano Ronaldo as well after you said he was the signing of the season, remember? So I just wanted to make sure some of the more left field choices get made before Monday's show. Of the 20 teams... <laughs> I, I wonder how ridiculous you'll go with this. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're going to pick Norwich for, for all the endeavour. Your team of the season in the Premier League. Funnily you should say that, Hugh. No, I'm joking. I'm not going to go for Norwich, but I am also going to go left field. And hopefully you won't be as offended by this. Crystal Palace. Under Patrick Vieira, I thought they were exceptional. I think a lot of people expected and maybe predicted that Vieira would really struggle and that Palace would really struggle post-Roy Hodgson. But the way that he took all the work that Hodgson had done and added his own kind of tactics and take on the team, brought in some young players. I think they, by the end of the season, they were definitely one of it, you know everyone's favourite other teams, if you like. I remember us having that discussion about our favourite other teams, you know, those teams that occupy mid-table. And I really hope that they could become that next season, cause some upsets against some of the bigger teams, play some really good stuff. Mark Gay in defence, I absolutely love Michael Elise. I think he could be fantastic. Eberichi Eze as well, coming back from injury. You know, he's getting a tune out of some of those strikers. You know, Palace, for me, team of the season, for all those reasons. Hopefully, hopefully you're not too offended by that. I'm not offended by that, but I can promise the listeners you're not going to hear any of that tripe on Monday. Okay, so make sure you join us for some serious football conversation and some serious journalists from the Times giving out their end of season awards. As I say, some huge games in the Nations League and World Cup qualifiers for us to react to. But remember, in the meantime, make sure you check out the Times and the Sunday Times online. Sign up today. You'll get yourself a month free. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. And as always, we We'll see you on Monday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.